Macworld Podcast, number 32, March 22nd, 2006. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Saroos Faravar. It's been about two weeks since our last get-together over the podcasting medium, but a lot of things have happened, and we've got so much to cover in this podcast, I don't even know if we'll be able to fit it all in. Well, I'm sure we will. But uh, let's get get started. The first news, of course, uh, as I'm sure many of you have already heard, is that the project to put Windows XP on a Mac, on an Intel Mac, has been successful. There was a prize, a little bit over $13,000 that was put up that uh, some people contributed as sort of motivation to get this going. And yes, it is now possible to install Windows XP onto an Intel Mac. Myself, along with with many of my other colleagues here and many other of you Mac users out there probably, you know, think that Mac OS is a vastly superior OS to Windows. And, you know, don't worry, it is. Our empirical studies have shown (laughs) that it is. Uh, completely superior. But, you know, from time to time, there are occasional things that require you to sort of dabble in Windows that you can't do in a Mac. Uh, unfortunately, they do exist. But there is a way now, uh, there are instructions online, we'll post a link in the show notes, um, where if you have a PC and you have a working copy of Windows uh, on a Windows CD and you have a certain burning software, then uh, if you make certain tweaks into the internal uh, basic software of the Mac, the, what's called the bootloader, which determines, you know, what it does after, uh, the, you know, electricity starts running through the motherboard, uh, when the computer figures out what it should do. Um, if you change some things in that, it, you can enable it so that it will run Windows or Mac, and you can dual boot between them, and it's pretty cool. And uh, a lot of people were saying that it couldn't be done. Um, you know, Microsoft was saying it couldn't be done, but they've all been proven wrong, and uh, it's and this is very very cool. Uh, so we've got a lot of coverage um, up on there. We're going to be having a an article from senior editor Rob Griffiths of MacWorld, who is going to be on on our website later this week. We'll be talking about his experience of installing XP to his Mac. Now, I should say there's also been a few problems. While most of the st- while the operating system works, and most you know functions work, there is some issue of drivers. So, for example, uh, the video card doesn't totally work. It works sort of. Um, so, you know, you're not going to be doing want to doing anything processor intensive, uh, or excuse me, graphics card intensive on the on Windows on the Intel Mac. Um, there is now a second contest underway to write drivers for all of these things. So that means that, you know, uh, the software can take advantage fully of the hardware that's in the Intel Mac because, you know, up till now, you couldn't have a Windows machine that was running on this new Intel hardware with all this other Mac hardware attached to it. But there are some of the things that do work, uh, Ethernet works, uh, wireless works, and, and those kinds of things. So it'll be interesting to see how this goes and if people are going to be installing uh, Windows. For now, it's still kind of labor-intensive. You have to kind of know what you're doing a little bit. But, you know, for those of you who want to take the plunge, um, we'll have the link up on our website and uh, in the show notes, of course. So go check that out. And if you try it, let me know. I'd be curious to to find out, you know, how well it goes. Um, Speaking of Rob Griffiths, uh, we're going to be having two interviews this show. Uh, Our first is going to be with Rob Griffiths, uh, senior editor here at Macworld. 
He just completed a long article uh, on Macworld.com. I suggest that all of you who are interested or even thinking about getting a new Intel Mac, go check it out. It was up on on Macworld.com last week, and we'll have it linked up there uh, for your perusal. Um, I interviewed him last week uh, talking about his experience with the Mac Mini and uh, what he thinks it will mean for the future line of Mac. So we're going to cut to about a 10-minute interview that I did with Rob Griffith, senior editor of Macworld, right now. So, Rob, first of all, thanks for thanks for taking the time to be on the Macworld podcast. No problem. Now, for people who haven't seen it, there's this ginormous article that you wrote uh, about your experience with the Mac Mini. Before we, before you sat down with it, what were your expectations? Um, I think I was expecting Rosetta to be a definite negative aspect of the experience uh, in terms of running an emulated application and not a native application. Uh, I wasn't sure what to expect about the speed other than knowing that this was a machine Apple has targeted as basically the second cheapest in its lineup. So I wasn't, you know, I didn't have groundbreaking expectations for speed. And then finally I was concerned about the uh, onboard graphics chip and its ability to sort of handle Tiger's core graphics needs as well as uh, could it actually play any games. And what did you find? I mean, as far as, did, did it meet those expectations? It seemed like from your review that Rosetta performed a bit better than you expected. Yeah, overall, I think uh, all my areas of concern were addressed when I actually started using the machine. I mean, there's no doubt that when you compare Rosetta performance to a Mac running native applications, there's a performance hit. But once you're actually using Word or Excel in Rosetta on the Intel, um, it's fine. You know, I was editing a fairly large document. I scrolled through a 75-page document with graphics and text, and it's definitely a little slower than the PowerBook, but it still scrolls by faster than you could possibly read it. And if you're going to be doing that much jumping around in a big document, you're going to grab the scroll thumb and just drag it wherever you want to go. Um, and in Excel, like I said, I opened up a fairly monstrous spreadsheet with thousands of calculations, and uh, I think it was a half second slower than it was on uh, the PowerBook. So these aren't the kind of things you're going to notice in a typical day-to-day use of the machine. Now, it's a little different if you're in Photoshop. I mean, if you're a Photoshop wizard, you make your living using the program, you're not going to be very happy running Photoshop CS2 in Rosetta. Uh, you, you do wait for things to happen, and it takes you know a long time to load, <laughs> 40 seconds even with 2 gig of RAM, almost a minute with 512 meg. Um, oops, excuse me. But for the most part, I was thrilled with the performance of Rosetta. I mean, the fact that you could throw something like Tiger Woods Golf Game at it and it would actually run, uh, you know, frame rates were low, but it was playable. Uh, the fact that it's doing all that work on the fly, uh, I thought was very impressive. Now, as far as, uh, I remember, and I'm, I'm sure you do as well, that, that when OS X came out and there was this, you know, transition from OS 9 apps to OS 10 apps, uh, if you wanted to launch an OS 9 app, you had to wait for this sort of classic emulation to start up, even if you just wanted to run run one program for like a minute. Um, do you have that same problem with Rosetta, or is it sort of instantaneous and you don't even notice it? Yeah, it's uh, it all happens automatically in the background. And if you're opening sort of a small or medium-sized program, you probably won't even notice. You know, when I launched Net Newswire, uh, you know, it took seven seconds or something. Um, and but to the user, it looks like a normal experience. The icon is just bouncing in the dock a little bit longer than usual. But there's not like a big sign up that says "Loading Classic" or "Loading Rosetta." Please wait. Uh, and then once you've launched things once, if you use them again relatively quickly, uh, they'll launch again in a, in a much quicker fashion. So it, it is very seamless from the user's perspective. There's there's no preference panel to manage Rosetta. About the only thing you can do is uh, for some applications, there's a checkbox in the Get Info 
to let you run it under Rosetta if you want to do so. Uh, but that's about the only visible sign I saw of the Rosetta uh, emulation layer. I'm not even sure that's technically the right term for it, but the, the Rosetta technology that allows us to run PowerPC apps on Intel. Sure, sure. Um, now, I know for, for myself, and I'm sure there are many other listeners out there and possibly even yourself as well, you know, we're, we're sort of thinking about our next Mac purchase and, and what uh, Intel Mac we're going to be buying in the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, whatever. Um, has your experience with the Mac Mini influenced, you know, what you would consider buying, uh, you know, for your next Mac? Well, I, I think if anything, it has made me more excited about what the next Mac purchase may represent. You know, I, again, as I said, I'm using a machine here that is the second cheapest one you can purchase from Apple. And yet its performance in many respects betters my dual G5, which at the time was the most expensive machine you could purchase from Apple. So if you think about what the high-end Power Macs are going to have to look like this fall, they're going to have to have performance that's substantially faster than these minis in order to justify their price tags. So I have no idea what that machine is going to look like, but I think that Mac consumers are going to be thrilled with the performance of the high-end machines. And, you know, hopefully around that time we'll be seeing native versions of Word and Excel and Power, uh, excuse me, Word, Excel, and Photoshop, so they could turn into some super fast workstation machines. You know, I just, and that's just my guess based on seeing the performance of the mini and knowing where it's positioned in Apple's product line. Have you seen anything about, uh, you know, some of the big ticket applications that people tend to use, uh, the Adobe products and the, and the Microsoft products, when those are going to be slated to have universal binaries? Um, pr- probably no more detail than we've been able to read on Macworld, um, you know, that Photoshop was originally not set until 2007, I think, but now there's some rumors it might be that coming out this fall. And I'm not positive, but I thought I'd heard that there'd be a version of, of Office out sometime this year that would run uh, universal mode. But as I said, even for, for most users, even if Word and Excel don't ship universal, they really won't notice unless they're working on, you know, a thesis. What was the most uh, surprising or unexpected result that, that you had with your, you know, week-long experience with the Mini? Um, there were probably two things. One was um, just the, the performance of the Finder is, is sort of hard to express, but it, it is notably quicker at resizing windows, opening and closing windows, moving windows around, than is my dual G5. Um, at some point in the next week or so, I'm actually going to try a very dangerous experiment. I'm going to see if I can get the Universal Finder to run on uh, the PowerBook. <laughs> so, just because? Yeah, just because, I mean, it's Universal, so technically it should run on PowerPC, but I imagine it will probably fail miserably, but it's worth a shot. Um, and then the other, the other big surprise was just how well peripherals worked, um, which is the testing I did last night. You know, I have two printers, a scanner, and a graphics tablet, uh, in addition to, you know, a, a force feedback steering wheel, a USB gamepad, and a flight stick. And all of those things work great in Rosetta and in Universal applications. No, no hiccups at all. No hiccups at all. Hmm. That's pretty, that's pretty seamless. Yeah. And, and I, I come, I compare it to the transition we went through when we moved from both OS 9 to OS 10 and even from classic to OS 10 running under, you know, classic within OS 10. I remember I had a I had a tape drive that wouldn't work at all when I went from OS 9 to OS 10 because the drivers weren't there. I had printers that wouldn't work. I had to get a new scanner. Uh, I just took all my existing stuff, plugged it in, and it just worked. You know, I downloaded new drivers for the um, scanner and the graphics tablet, but the graphics tablet driver wasn't even a universal. Um, the scanner driver was, but it also worked out of the box with ViewScan. Well, that's that's pretty good to hear. I, I'm yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that. Uh... Yeah, like you said, there are a lot of peripherals that didn't didn't really work as advertised uh, during the transition from nine to ten. Yeah, so that was, I mean, it, I, 
at the end of the day, it's sort of the, the big takeaway for me was, um, regardless of what's inside this cover that you have to get off with a putty knife, um, it's still a Mac, you know, using it feels like a Mac. It, it works like a Mac. The things plug in, they just work. You know, there's, there's no, none of the fears of, oh my gosh, it's got Intel and industry standard parts in it, which means our peripherals are going to start breaking the way they do when you try to plug things into XP. And, you know, yeah, it just worked. I plugged in my USB Epson printer and two seconds later, OS X said, oh, here's your printer. Do you want to use it? Like, go, oh, okay. One other thing that I wanted to touch on was you had, uh, after your longer article on Macworld.com, you had a editor's notes blog entry uh, concerning some troubles that you had uh, with RAM. Can you can you go over th- that in a little bit? Yeah, I um, call it stupid user error. But uh, when I went out to upgrade the RAM, I kind of read the specs online and said, oh, I need PC 5300 DIMMs. And I found some at a local Apple reseller, but they were, you know, almost twice the price that they were online, and, and I don't like to pay that much to support my local resellers. So I tried one of these generic PC builders, and he said, yeah, we got 5300. So I went over there and picked up two sticks, and he threw them in a bag, and I took them home and left them in the bag, and then got out all the requisite tools and started reading the websites about ripping the Mini apart, and got it all ripped apart, and got the screws out, and got the hard drive flipped over, and pulled out the old RAM, and brought out my new RAM sticks and noticed that they were wider than the Mini, <laughs> and uh, realized at that point I had a problem. And that what I had done was uh, purchased regular DIMMs, and of course, what the i excuse me, what both the Mini and the iMac use are called SO DIMMs for small outline, and they're about half the width of a standard DIMM. So, I took another long drive back to the reseller, returned the RAM, and ordered the right stuff from the web. And uh, one day later, it was up and running with two gig. Wow! So, SO DIMMs are the way to go. Yeah. Unless you want, you know, use a hammer and see what you can do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Rob. And so what happened to this Mini? Did it have to go back to wherever it came from, or are you going to keep it? Um, it uh, came from Macworld, so I get to keep it. I'm, it's actually the official Mac OS X Hints testing station for Intel-related tips so that I can test the Intel tips as well. Sounds good. All right, Rob, we'll keep us posted on your further adventures with the Mini. All righty, sir. Thank you. And thanks again. Have a good day. All right. Uh, well, that was Rob Griffith, senior editor of Macworld, talking about his week-long experience with the Mac Mini. And as, of course, I, as I said earlier, uh, Rob will be having an article up on Macworld.com probably later this week uh, talking about his experience with installing Windows XP onto his Mac Mini. So that should be kind of interesting. And uh, we'll probably be having more coverage, of course, on Macworld.com and uh, in, probably in, in the next podcast. So you know, stay tuned for that. And, you know, maybe the driver's contest will have been won by then. We'll see. But it's it's something to that we'll keep following for you. Now we're going to change gears a little bit, and we're going to hear from one of our other senior editors, Christopher Breen, um, who we last heard from on the podcast at the after the Apple special event in Cupertino at Apple headquarters. Um, I pulled him aside after he had checked out the new Apple Hi-Fi stereo system, and he gave us his thoughts. I believe that was on uh, Macworld podcast number 30, uh, where we, we heard from him. So I wanted to bring Chris Brack to the podcast and talk to him about a new speaker that he reviewed that is comparable in price and functionality to the iPod Hi-Fi. And he's got some interesting things to say um, about what you can get for a similar price point, meaning $350, which is what the iPod Hi-Fi retails for. He just recently reviewed on PlaylistMag.com the new Audio Engine 5, which is a different stereo system. 
it's an iPod compatible stereo system, but unlike the iPod Hi-Fi, it's not all in one. The speakers actually separate out. And in Chris's opinion, uh, he thinks that that's actually a good thing and that, you know, Apple, uh, doesn't really do us any favors by having it all compacted into one unit. So we're going to hear from Chris Breen about his thoughts on the Audio Engine 5. All right. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing really well. I'm glad to hear it. Last week, you had your review up on Playlist about the new Audio Engine uh, speaker system, and you were comparing it to the iPod Hi-Fi. And it's about it's, – it's roughly, I would imagine, the same four-factor. If not, the, I, the audio engine is a little bit bigger. But the, the important point I think here is, is that they're you know, the same price point. They're obviously competing with one another at about $350. Yeah, that wasn't the intent of the audio engine folks because they had no idea the hi-fi was coming out, nor did any of us. It just happened to be that this thing existed. I had it here, and then Apple uh, unveiled the iPod hi-fi. I listened to that at Apple's event, and then I've had a chance to play with the uh, audio engine speakers here. And the fact that they're both $350 makes the comparison pretty easy because a lot of the portable iPod speakers are less than that. They're $250, $300 on the high end. So Apple's system was more expensive. We had the audio engine to compare it to, and um, you know, in my estimation, the audio engines sound better. Why do they sound better? Well, partly... There are a couple of different things. One is that it sounds more balanced. Um, the iPod Hi-Fi sounds too middly to me. The high end isn't all that good. It puts out a lot of bass, not so much that it's, that it's obnoxious, but it puts out enough. But the middle is just really present. It sounds a little muddy. Whereas these audio engine speakers are larger, and they you get a little bit too much middle for my taste. But Dan Frakes listened to his, and he said it sounded perfectly balanced to him. So it's got nice bass without being too thumpy. It's got a very nice top end, so you can listen to classical and jazz and get a really nice sheen on the music that you don't get from the iPod Hi-Fi. You can also separate the speakers, and that you can't do with the iPod Hi-Fi. It's a single unit. Being able to separate them makes the soundstage vastly better. So if you're using it in your kitchen or in your living room or bedroom or something, you can get a really, really nice uh, stereo sound out of it. Whereas the iPod Hi-Fi, you get a good sound out of it as well, but you don't get that kind of separation that you can get from uh, discrete speakers. Yeah, I know that was a, a concern that I think some people raised when the iPod Hi-Fi came out is that, you know, if you're standing, you know, more than several feet away where you can – where you're able to distinguish the different channels, if you're listening to the iPod Hi-Fi, it's almost like listening in mono because to you standing 10, 12, 15 feet away – it's basically one channel. Yeah, and even if you stand in front of the thing and plant your ears in front of it, you really don't get a lot of separation. So it's, you know, although Apple has sort of promoted this thing as a high-end audiophile device, it's really kind of a glorified kitchen radio or a kitchen speaker system. And that and that's not to knock it. It really is a nice bookshelf system. But um, it's really something for filling a room full of sound rather than sitting down in front of and being able to distinguish uh, discrete left and right channels. Mm -hmm. Now, the last time we spoke, you had said that uh, the best way to audition speakers, any kind of speakers, the, the iPod Hi-Fi or this audio engine, is to play the music that you yourself actually listen to. Um, so if you don't mind my asking, wh what did you test these on to, to that you were able to determine that it had a weak uh, middle and a good, or excuse me, was that for the hi-fi? Uh, the hi-fi was uh, was too much middle. 
Uh, the audio engine has a touch more middle than I like, but it's it was close enough that uh, it was really a, a personal preference. But I guess what I was getting at is, are there certain types of music that are better suited to to listening for those various ranges? I mean, obviously, something like... Uh, I don't know, say, you know, hip-hop music or rock music would be more conducive to testing out the bass, for example. Right, right. I think that listening to a good jazz recording, a good classical recording, is a nice way to tell because there's a lot of transparency in that music, a lot of uh, timbres that you can... um, you can perceive differences pretty easily. You can pick out instruments. for example, you can hear the violins at the top end. That'll give you an opportunity to listen to how the top end sounds. If it sounds sort of muted, if you're not getting a lot of um, hearing sort of rosin on the bow, then you you can tell that the sound is kind of muffled at the top. Uh, middle on that, again, if you can't easily distinguish instruments, then and if it's all sort of mushy in the middle, that tells you that the middle's not very clear. It's either not present enough or it's too present. At the bottom end... Uh, yeah, auditioning rock and hip-hop is good for that. If it's real thumpy without being distinct, it's sort of like if you're driving down the boulevard and you hear this car coming from about three blocks away that's got this big thump, 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 thump thing happening. That's not a balanced sound. It's just because you really like that gut-thumping sound. For me, that's not pleasing. I don't want to hear that coming out of my portable speaker system. I want to be able to tell, oh, that's a bass drum, that's a a bass or that's a cello that's playing and I want to be able to distinguish the quality of the tone rather than just have the thing punch me in the gut. All right. Well, it sounds like for your money you're going with a uh, with the audio engine. Yeah. It's again because I like a balanced sound. Now, as I said last time and I think it's worth emphasizing here is that the kind of speakers you like is a very personal thing. It's like that person driving that car 3 blocks away really likes bass and for them if they were to get a balanced system in there where they got good top, good middle, good bottom, they might feel that the whole thing sounded really weak to them because they crave that bass. I tend to like speakers that accentuate the highs a little bit. I like kind of a sizzle on top of my speakers, and some people might find that a little too much for their taste. So if you have the opportunity, that's why I suggest playing music that you're familiar with because you know what you want from that music. And if what you want from that music is a lot of thump, the audio engine is a good speaker, but you may prefer something that has a huge subwoofer on it that's going to knock you over when you play the stuff you want. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll keep that in mind, and, and I'm sure everyone everyone out there, when they're auditioning speakers, as you put it, will will keep that in mind as well. Well, thank, thanks a lot, Chris, and we, we appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast. You bet. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you soon. Well, that about wraps up our show, Macworld Podcast number 32. Once again, you can, of course, email me anytime uh, to hear about future topics or questions or comments or anything like that. My email address is cfaravar at macworld.com. And uh, I've been soliciting people to email me over the last couple of shows, and I want to thank you again so much for writing me. It makes my job much better because normally when I'm recording, actually, as I'm recording this right now, I am in 
our conference room and our Macworld offices, and I'm just staring out the window talking into a microphone, and often it feels like I'm podcasting into a void. So when people email me and they say that they like the podcast or they tell me something I can improve on in the podcast, it really helps me have a connection to you guys out there. So please do email me and let me know what you think because uh, it, it helps me make the show better, and, uh, and I like hearing from you. So keep it up. Um, as you also probably know, I've been sending out some 3G iPod cases to some people. I've got about 10 left. So if you want to email me and you want a 3G iPod case, all you have to do is just, again, drop me an email. Let me know what you like about the show. Let me know how I can improve the show. And please do send me your address and also how you pronounce your name. Uh, and if you're one of the first 10 people to email me, I can send you our last remaining cases. Um, this... At the end of the cases, this will probably be the end of this round of giveaways. We may have some future giveaways coming up, uh, but the giveaways will be on hiatus for now and as we just sort of clear out these cases. So stay tuned for that. Keep listening because uh, we may have some, some changes to announce. I just wanted to read uh, some emails to close out the show um, that have come in over the last week or so. This one comes from Carlos Aracil. Hello, everybody. My name is Carlos, and I'm listening to you from Spain in Europe. I'm quite a new listener to your program, and as far as I know, I can tell it is one of the best podcasts I've heard around. I understand it's difficult, but more often podcasts would be greatly appreciated. I've just received my new iPod 4GIG Nano, and I'm experiencing one of the m most successful experiences in the last years with it. I give it a 10 out of 10 points because of its ease of use and its great functionality. It would be great to include a section in the program in the program, including hints for the iPods and iTunes. I want to thank you for the program again. Keep on with this great job. And in case there is a third-generation case left, I'd really appreciate if you could send me one. Thanks a lot. Carlos Aracil, Spain. Um, Carlos, uh, send me your address, and I'd be happy to send you a case. I emailed you earlier this morning, um, and uh, so I'd love to uh, get one out to you. But you got to send me your mailing address so I can, I can send you one. Uh, just a couple more emails. This one comes from Ryan Mack in Tucson, Arizona. Sarus, I love the podcast and have been listening since episode one. I wanted to say thanks for including so much of Steve's actual keynote audio from the recent Apple special media event. I was hoping that Apple would release a streaming video of the event, but since they didn't, what you included in episode 30 was the next best thing. I wanted to let you know that I would love to have the episodes come out more frequently, even if they were a bit shorter each episode, so please pass that information on to your editor. I would also like to see more coverage of software, especially interviews with Mac developers on products that have already come out and on future versions. Finally, I dropped my original iPod mini last week, and unfortunately when I picked it up and tried to turn it on, I got the sad iPod icon. After trying to fix it for a couple of days, I gave up and got a great deal on a refurb 3G iPod from Apple. I would love to have one of the cases you have sitting by your desk, if you still have some, to keep this new iPod safe. Keep up the good work. I'll be listening. Ryan Mack, Tucson, Arizona. Ryan, there is an iPod case to you on its way as I speak, uh, so you should be getting that very soon. Uh, I hope you enjoy it, and don't drop this one, all right? Um, you were asking about streaming video of the of the keynote. Usually, Apple uh, about a couple of weeks after any Apple event, Apple usually does offer QuickTime streaming video, or not streaming, I should say, QuickTime archived video uh, on its website. Um, so, if you go check that out, you can you can find that. Usually, it takes them about a week or two. I don't know why they have such a lag, but uh, of course, on the podcast, we do have excerpts, as you know, from the all the Apple events. Um, just a couple more shorter emails. Uh, this is from Tom Crane in Mulheim, Germany. 
Um, he says, greetings from southern Germany. Just wanted to add my vote to those that believe there should be a weekly podcast. Good topics. Each cast keep me coming back. Would love to hear your take on the latest rumors. There's always some new rumors circulating on the web, and it would be great to get yours and your guests' opinion on them. Keep up the good work. Tom Crane, Mulheim, Germany. Uh, Tom, about rumors. Generally, Macworld doesn't like to propagate rumors that we can't verify. Um, there are lots of rumor sites out there, but you know we think that it's it's much more valuable to sort of uh, you know just tell you what we can tell you, and not to speculate and and propagate rumors that may turn out to be false uh, some of the time. But that said, um, for you know we may consider. Uh, maybe having a, uh, a roundtable discussion of debunking some some rumors in in future shows. So I'll keep that in mind. But thank you. Um, this uh, is from Anthony Chase from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, he writes, "Well, I'm interested in topics like switching from PC to Mac. My family use Windows still, so some suggestions on how to make their switch easier would be great. Maybe." Uh, there are some useful programs, and yes, I'd love an iPod case. Anthony Chase, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Anthony, um, the all this discussion about installing XP on an Intel Mac may be helpful for your family. So check out on MacWorld.com uh, the information that we have there, and Rob Griffith's article later this week concerning that. Uh, just one last email from Sweden. This is from Leif Stenud. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Hi, just to drop a line to tell you that I'm a regular and appreciative listener of your podcast. I live in Stockholm, Sweden. I really like your program. A couple of notes. Sometimes, like in your emerging program, the recordings of the guests' speeches were not easy to hear for a non-English listener. As English is not my mother tongue, it is valuable to have very clear voices to listen to, like yours, without disturbing background sounds. I don't appreciate the programs like the one in the cruiser, with on the cruise, I think he means, with interviews where the speakers did not have so much of news information to offer. I got an impression that it was more of marketing to the people and companies involved. Your credibility and goodwill will be kept only if you have very condensed and focused messages of news to convey. Like in your latest podcast, including the case of emerging technologies, this multi-touch thing was fantastic. So keep up your good work. Regards from a cold and snowy Stockholm, Leif. Um, we will try to keep the uh, podcast as focused as possible. Um, as for the – you were talking about uh, background noise. As I said earlier, I record my voice tracks like this one in an empty room where there's no one around. But sometimes for events like that where I'm in a conference uh, you know, out in the field, it can be difficult for me to record somebody in a quiet room. I do my best. Um, but in those types of conference situations, there's lots of people milling about, and it's hard to control the environment. But, um, you know, just keep that in mind. But, you know, we try and do keep the best sound quality that we can. Um, so that's about all the time I have for today. Uh, of course, check out all of our coverage at Macworld.com and our new blog, MacUser.com. Be sure and also add yourself to the virtual map, the Frapper map of the podcast listeners. We'll have a link of that in the show notes. And this podcast will be the second podcast available in the enhanced AAC format with the bookmarks and the visuals and all of that good stuff. If you still need the MP3, if you're playing on something that's not iTunes or an iPod, uh, we'll have that available as a separate download, um, again, in the show notes for you there or if you just want something with a little bit higher audio quality for your archives, 
But again, you miss out on the enhanced stuff, the, the visuals and stuff. And I, I'm really happy with that. I, I think it's great that we can now add chapter markers and all of these things. Um, so yeah, so that, that will do it for Macworld Podcast number 32. I hope that if, if you guys are out there going to be trying anything that we talked about on the podcast, you know, installing XP to your Intel or anything like that, please do email me, uh, at macworld.com. Signing off from San Francisco, this is Saru Swaravar for the Macworld Podcast.